You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Everybody, you're all very, very welcome indeed to this, our Behind the Headlines, Genocide and Ethnic Cleansing in Our Times from Rwanda, from Rwanda to the Rohingyas. Um, we're really, really delighted to welcome uh, so many of you to our last Behind the Headlines discussion of the autumn term. And it's a very uh, timely and important discussion on genocide and ethnic cleansing. My name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, our Arts and Humanities Research uh, Institute. And this event is part of our Behind the Headlines public discussion series, which sees us on an ongoing basis focus on many topics that are being uh, debated in the media and uh, which are highly relevant to the times that we're living in. And through this forum, what we're really trying to do is draw on the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities in order to provide a space for respectful public discourse um, that is nuanced and combats simplification. Um, and as I say, we've had some really cracking uh, behind the headlines this term, uh, one on artificial intelligence and another on uh, freedom of speech. And, and there was a lovely fake news, I mean, a very interesting fake news uh, discussion as well. Um, this evening, we bring together uh, the historical aspects of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, the hook, if you want, it are is what's going on in Myanmar and the Rohingyas, which is very, very uh, uh, much um, uh, in the news at the moment. Um, indeed, we wonder what happened to Never Again, uh, which was uttered, of course, after uh, the Holocaust and the devastating events of the Second World War, and also again uh, in the 1990s when international institutions such as the United Nations uh, and intergovernmental cooperation throughout the European Union failed to stop further atrocities uh, in Rwanda and uh, Bosnia. It also calls into question the role of commemoration and the hope that remembering past genocides uh, uh, might avert uh, future genocides. Sadly, obviously, as we know from the Holocaust, this just isn't happening. Uh, tonight, we have a very, very accomplished uh, 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 panel of international scholars and practitioners who are going to, I think, throw up uh, some very important uh, uh, insights and uh, help us answer some of the questions that are uh, uh, troubling us. Our first speaker this evening is Professor Ben Kiernan, and uh, Ben is the Whitney Grizzled uh, professor of History at Yale, and he's the author of Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to Darfur. He's currently a visiting research fellow in the Trinity Long Room Hub, and it's been an absolute joy to have Ben around. He's been with us for the last two months. Sadly, tonight's his 
last night. Um, and uh, at Yale, uh, Ben has played a huge role in promoting uh, genocide uh, studies. Um, and for the last 30 years, he's documented the crimes of the Khmer Rouge uh, regime and also uh, founded the Cambodian uh, Genocide uh, Programme, which uncovered the archives of the Khmer uh, Rouge uh, secret police and anyway, a hugely significant uh, project. Our second speaker this evening is uh, Jude Lal Fernando, who will be known to many of us, I'm sure. He's a professor here in Trinity in intercultural uh, theology and interreligious studies at the Irish School of Ecumenics. Uh, and he's going to look at geopolitical uh, approaches uh, which block international cooperation and speedy responses uh, to cases of genocide and ethnic uh, cleansing. Jude has uh, many strings to uh, his bow in terms of research, but his main interests are uh, religion, peace and conflict, uh, with specific focus on the role of inter-religious dialogue in peace building and ethno-nationalisms and geopolitics. And uh, he has focused largely on uh, Sri Lanka, but also South Asia uh, more generally. Our third uh, speaker this evening, also uh, uh, from Trinity, is uh, Professor Rosemary uh, Byrne. She's a professor uh, in international law in our law school and former human rights commissioner for the Irish Human Rights uh, Commission. And she will consider the approach uh, of the international community in the prosecution of genocide and ethnic uh, cleansing and its more ambivalent response to uh, survivors seeking international protection. Uh, Rosemary also spent two years observing at the trials um, uh, at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and has been a consultant for the International Criminal Court. And last but not least, we're absolutely delighted to uh, welcome uh, uh, to Trinity this evening Dennis Halliday, who is a former uh, United Nations uh, Assistant Secretary General and was uh, the UN humanitarian coordinator uh, in Iraq in uh, uh, 1997-1998. to And what Dennis will bring tonight is his frontline experience uh, of uh, genocidal uh, uh, action. So again, a a wonderfully rich uh, uh, perspective. The format is as it always is. Each of our speakers have been asked to talk for nine minutes and no longer. Uh, And then we throw the floor open uh, for question and answers. Um, Could I just say, if you would like to ask a question, if you can uh, uh, obviously raise your hand. Uh, But we don't need speeches. We want direct uh, 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 questions because so many people... Uh, uh, want to get in on the conversation. We try to take as many questions as we can and then we'll return to our panel uh, for their answers. So keep your questions direct and brief, but also if you wouldn't mind identifying uh, yourself. I'd like you now to turn your phones to silent, uh, but any of you who'd like to share your views of the discussion, please join the conversation on Twitter uh, at the hashtag HubMatters and by tagging at TLRH, or TLR Hub, sorry. Now, for the first time, uh, we are, I hope, uh, live streaming uh, our... uh, Are we live streaming? Yes? No? Well, maybe. 
Yeah, well, we'd hope to live stream. Maybe it's not going to happen tonight. However, we are definitely podcasting uh, uh, this evening's uh, panel uh, uh, contributions. So if you want to listen again uh, to uh, our contributions uh, or you want to share the discussion uh, with a friend, uh, uh, please uh, uh, feel free to do so. It'll be on our website tomorrow. So without further ado, I'd like you to join me in welcoming our first uh, speaker this evening, uh, Ben Kiernan. In August 1941, Winston Churchill described Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union. Whole districts are being exterminated. Since the Mongol invasions of Europe in the 16th century, there has never been methodical, merciless butchery on such a scale. We are in the presence of a crime without a name. News was also leaking out about the ongoing Nazi slaughter of nearly six million Jews in Poland, Ukraine, the Baltic states and other Nazi-occupied territories. In 1943, Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide for the Holocaust of the Jews, the Armenian genocide in World War I and other cases in history. In 1945, the world said never again. The 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide came into force as an international treaty in 1950. It has been ratified by 140 nations. It defines genocide as acts such as killing members of the group that are committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial or religious group as such. Now I want to make three points about genocide in international law. First, political and social groups are not protected by the Genocide Convention only national, ethnical, racial or religious groups. Second, it's not necessary for a perpetrator to intend to destroy an entire group. Acts committed with the intent to destroy a substantial part of a protected group constitute genocide. And third, the perpetrator's motive is not mentioned in the 1948 Convention. The particular motive is irrelevant. Racial hatred like that of the Nazis for Jews, may be the main motive. But the motive for other genocides may be, for instance, territorial conquest, economic gain, or religious domination. Intent is what matters, that the destruction of the group is consciously desired. So although the Holocaust gave rise to the term genocide, not all cases of genocide are as extreme as the Holocaust. Bosnian Serbs used the term ethnic cleansing in the 1990s. It means the forcible expulsion of a community from its home region. Ethnic cleansing can be accomplished by committing genocidal massacres to terrorise survivors and make them flee, or it can be achieved without genocide. But it too is a crime against international law. In 2002, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court recognised that forced displacement and deportation, even in peacetime, constitute crimes against humanity when they are committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population. Since the Holocaust, extermination has also been a crime against humanity. It's slightly different from genocide. 
It includes massacres, but also the intentional infliction of conditions of life that is calculated to bring about the destruction of part of a population. For extermination, unlike genocide, the persecuted group could be a social or political group. Now, although many people regard genocide as a 20th century phenomenon, only the term itself and the 1948 criminalisation of the Act are specific to the 20th century. Similar acts and similar concepts have existed for millennia. Examples are mentioned in the Bible and by Thucydides. Rome committed genocide against Carthage in 146 BC. Crusaders perpetrated genocidal massacres against Jews in Europe and against Arabs and Jews in Palestine. Mongols committed genocide against several thriving cities in the 13th century. In the 15th, Vietnam committed genocide against the neighbouring kingdom of Champa. In the 16th century, Spanish did so in Hispaniola, as did Japanese in Korea. Though the term genocide did not yet exist, the concept and the acts did, and other terms served. To take examples from 16th century Ireland, during the English conquest, the term used in Ulster at one point was to unpeople the, the territory. And in Munster, which was devastated in the 1580s, Lord Burley described the region as having been dispeopled. As European colonialism expanded across the world and settlers took up new lands from indigenous peoples, they provoked local resistance and genocide was sometimes the result. Almost the entire continents of North America, Australia and Africa were conquered by American and European empires in the 19th century alone. Genocides occurred on all three continents. By 1900, the world had become smaller. A new phenomenon emerged, genocides perpetrated by dictatorships that had seized control of tottering, shrinking or new empires, aiming to reverse territorial losses or conquer new regions from established powers. The 20th century offered mass murderers new technological opportunities. Armaments production, telegraph communications, mass civilian enlistment in military organisations and rapid transportation all facilitated genocide. Population pressure on the land also increased the numbers of potential victims. The worldwide population nearly doubled between 1500 and 1800, but then it doubled again almost between 1800 and 1910. For expansionist regimes, mass killing presented greater benefits with less risk of labour shortages. For 20th century totalitarian party states propounding race or class ideologies, entire groups of people became expendable. While the Nazis pursued their racial enemies and territorial conquests, the communist giants, Stalin's Soviet Union and Mao's China, pursued mass killing of domestic political enemies and social classes. During the Cold War, political massacres and genocides occurred on both sides. In the 1960s, the US-backed Indonesian army supervised the murder of half a million communists and others, and then went on to invade East Timor and kill 100,000 more people in what the UN Truth Commission called extermination. In 1971, the Pakistani military conducted a genocide in Bangladesh, and in 1975, 
to 79, the Pol Pot regime killed 1.7 million people in Cambodia. The Guatemalan military in the early 1980s committed genocide against ethnic Mayan Indians. Throughout the Cold War, however, the 1948 Genocide Convention was never enforced. The United States did not ratify the convention until 1988. The Cold War's end saw no reduction in the occurrence of genocides, but it finally ushered in the first enforcement of the Genocide Convention. War crimes committed in Bosnia provoked the UN Security Council to establish an international criminal tribunal to try the perpetrators like Ratko Mladic, who was recently convicted of genocide. Then, the 1994 Rwandan genocide of the country's Tutsi minority, in three months it was the fastest genocide since the Holocaust, obliged the UN to set up another tribunal. And in 1998, a former Rwandan mayor became the first person to be convicted of genocide in an international court, 50 years after the Genocide Convention. The massacre by Mladic and others of Bosnian Muslim men at Srebrenica in 1995 fit the Genocide Convention definition. To totally destroy North Korea, a country of 25 million people, as Donald Trump recently threatened to do, would be to commit genocide too. The same applies to the North Korean regime, which has asserted that the four islands of the Japanese archipelago should be sunken into the sea by a nuclear bomb. And it went on, let's reduce the US mainland into ashes. North Korea and the US are both signatories to the Genocide Convention. The UN Security Council, of which the US is a member, is charged with implementing the convention. And Trump's threats of genocide, even if not carry out, carried out, weaken its mandate. Currently, the fate of the Rohingyas in Burma is a, pr a pressing case of ethnic cleansing. A minority of nearly a million Muslims in a largely Buddhist country, Rohingyas have lived in what is now Burma since the 15th century. When British colonial rule ended in 1948, they became citizens of a democratic union of Burma. But the army seized power and deprived them of their citizenship, and they began to flee into Bangladesh in the 1990s. The oppression sadly escalated after the elections in 19... Uh, sorry, in 2015, brought the political prisoner, former political prisoner Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy, the NLD, into government. And in August, after a small Rohingya insurgent group affiliated with the so-called Islamic State attacked military posts, the army attacked the Rohingyas as a group. After decades of military violence and the NLD's silent neglect of them, it was predictable that ISIS would find some sympathisers among the hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees. Targeting all Rohingya, though, is an international crime. China aids Burma and shields it from UN Security Council action, while the Burmese army is blocking a UN inquiry commission. The appearance of ISIS in Burma is a symptom of the problem the world faces. The 2003 US-UK invasion of Iraq based on the false premises of weapons of mass destruction and without UN Security Council support, spawned an international insurgency that transformed into ISIS. It seized territory in Iraq, Syria and Libya, conducted genocide against Yazidis, 
ethnic cleansing against others and war crimes against others. Now losing ground in the Middle East, it's shown up in Southeast Asia and sparked off the worst example of ethnic cleansing since the Pol Pot regime. The United States and China must reform their reckless rhetoric and dangerous policies. The great powers should cooperate with the UN to end genocide, not fuel it. Thank you, Ben. The, the examples of cases of genocide that you outlined and analysed are clear indications of the institutionalised practices. Genocide is not simply a killing of a group of individuals. Genocide is a social, political and cultural practice which is aimed at destroying the identity of a group of people, a distinct identity, which is aimed at destroying the very foundations that form a distinct national group. Raphael Lenkin goes further and some of his definitions were not adopted by the UN Convention. And he says, it is not only a destruction of a distinct national group, it is also a practice that imposes the oppressor or the perpetrator's identity on the oppressed or the victim. And this cannot be done without an institutional apparatus. My main focus is on the institutionalization of genocidal social, cultural and political practices. Simply because regimes are changed, genocidal practices don't change. This is the biggest myth about Aung San Suu Kyi's democratization. Simply because that there was a regime change in Sri Lanka in 2015, the ongoing genocidal practices did not stop. Instead, the regime changes became a facade to cover up the past crimes as well as the ongoing crimes. The institutional practices of genocide against the Rohingya people in Burma started as far back as, as the 70s. In 1977, the military junta carried out a census by registering citizens and the Rohingyas were excluded. In 1982, their citizenship rights were deprived. And when the people were protesting, these protests were brutally crushed through a series of pogroms. And the same practice continued, not only as an institutional practice amongst the military of Myanmar, but also amongst the opposition leaders, which was led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Even as a 
prisoner under the military junta. And when it comes to 2015 elections, the party she led purged every Muslim candidate. This is a social, cultural, political practice which is embedded in the majoritarian Burmese Buddhist psyche. It is historically constructed. And it is historically accentuated by both the junta and the majoritarian politics of the, Na the National League for Democracy. Now, simply because there was a change from military power to civilian power, partially, this social, cultural, political practice has not changed. In 2015, there was a regime change in Sri Lanka. After the massive bloodbath that was caused against the Tamil people by the previous regime, the opposition candidate for presidency in the electoral platforms did not talk about the massacres. The opposition candidate talked only about the corruptions in the victorious government. The main bone of contention between the opposition in Sri Lanka and the ruling party before 2015 was who owns the military victory? Is it the former president who led the war and his family who owns the military victory? Or is it the opposition, the security forces and the single masses who wholeheartedly back the war own the military victory? So the genocidal practice was ingrained, embedded in the social, cultural, political, psyche, institutions of the country. Now, why do I want to talk about regime change? Because most of the Western states are fascinated by this democratization process. At the end of the day, when it comes to Myanmar and Sri Lanka, what is democracy? If this democracy does not recognize the distinct national group called Rohingya, can you call it a democracy? When this democracy does not field any Muslim candidate, can you call that a democracy? Even in a Western liberal sense. When the opposition candidate and his parties do not call what happened against the Tamils for 60 years in Sri Lanka as a gross violation of human rights, that they are a distinct national group. Can we call that regime change, a democratic change? It is a state-led, racially, ideologically-led democratization. Why do the major actors in the international community embrace these regime changes and do not want to call the crime by their names because there are trade interests there are arms deals there are investments and there are strategic interests 
In the case of Sri Lanka, the 2002 peace process was totally dismantled by the US and British intervention diplomatically, politically and later on militarily the hands of the Sri Lankan security forces were enhanced. 1,000 US Marines based in Okinawa were brought to Sri Lanka to train the Sri Lankan security forces at the time when there was a ceasefire agreement. 60 years of oppression and destruction by the single dominated state was stopped by the Tamil resistance movement and a de facto state was created in the North and East. And this movement was labelled as a terrorist group while the ceasefire agreement was in effect. And similarly, what you can find in Myanmar is at a time when there are elections internally the military and the ultranationalists in Myanmar realize this is the opportune moment. This is the opportune moment to put forward their genocidal onslaught against the Rohingya people. And it is at that moment what you can find a mass exodus of Rohingya people over 600,000 fleeing to Bangladesh. And UN Security Council calls it a security issue. Following the same interpretation of the Myanmar's government and international human rights groups like International Crisis Group says both in the case of Sri Lanka and in Myanmar we have to give time to these regimes to move on. What does it mean by giving time? Giving time here means to let these regimes to continue with their ongoing genocidal practices, both in the Arakan state, in the Rohingya areas, where 40% of the Rohingya population have been depopulated, as well as in the Tamil areas, where at least out of 18 square 18,000 square kilometers, 9,000 square kilometers have been acquired by the Sri Lankan military, building a range of Buddhist statues, changing the names, Tamil names into singular names, and this is being projected as a post-conflict era. This is being projected as a move towards democratization. Thank you very much. I feel quite humbled coming after uh, Ben hearing about the long history of uh, genocide and Jude for really a really wonderful passionate talk uh, about one of the many things that you highlighted, the resistance of actually acknowledging uh, when crimes occur. Uh, and so what I want to speak about uh, this evening, what really strikes me is, as uh, quite remarkable even of having a lawyer on this panel is if you were to go back a few decades in the 1980s, and I think as Ben has highlight, highlighted, you would have had ample uh, examples of instances of genocide in distant and recent history. 
you wouldn't have had a lawyer talking about prosecutions, or if you did, you would have you know, gently tolerated the utopian idea that somehow you could create individual criminal liability uh, for these uh, acts that were committed uh, and often shielded uh, within states uh, and by greater powers. Uh, and so when we're talking about international criminal justice as one means of responding to atrocity, uh, you're really looking at a movement that has just developed. It's gotten incredible traction over the last three decades. Uh, and last week, when you had the Mladic judgment come out, uh, it's particularly, I think, important for those of us uh, in Ireland, because here you have an example of uh, what has been deemed by an international court with over 2.5 million pages of transcripts uh, now generated from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, what has been deemed to be, uh, after judicial scrutiny and rigorous uh, assessment of the evidence, uh, genocide. Uh, but if you think about Radko Mladic uh, getting his verdict of a life sentence in 2017, the Srebrenica massacre, uh, was in 1995. So what it tells us is that justice is very slow. And it tells us that justice is also very expensive. The price tag for ICTY alone was $2 billion. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which uh, was created a year after ICTY, uh, we refer to it as ICTR. It's based in Arusha in Tanzania. Again, another $2 billion for 61 convictions. Uh, and it uh, produced some of the most um, significant watershed judgments, uh, and particularly in the area of sexual violence. Why we can be very critical about international criminal justice and the limitations are many. Uh, if you look at the jurisprudence that has come out in the past 25 years, one area that has been really striking has been in the recognition in international law that sexual violence isn't just simply a, an unfortunate side effect of conflict. In fact, it's often part of the strategy. So you see now the acknowledgement that such things as forced marriages, various forms of sexual violence, uh, the removal of the requirement to show uh, or, or to disprove that, or to raise consent uh, of a victim when the situation, such as in the, the concentration camps uh, in the Balkans, uh, was such that one could presume that coercion was pre-existent. Um, so changing the actual legal criteria to reflect the kind of violence and atrocity that occurs in conflict is something that these tribunals have done that is really quite remarkable. And in fact, they've gone far beyond what many domestic uh, parties Parliaments uh, have uh, been committed to achieve in their own national laws. And they've also, although the numbers are low, they've managed to get a, a fair amount of the senior leaders, both with respect to the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Uh, but that said, international justice um, has had a great deal of uh, barriers in its way and, and has, I think now when we're, we're looking at the uh, International Criminal Court, uh, is really in the middle of a legitimacy crisis. Uh, and so it's important, I think, to be realistic about what prosecutions can achieve. Uh, if we're supposed to think about what this can how this can respond to the situation in Rwanda, if we look at these tribunals uh, and the ICC, uh, chances are that justice will be slow to come, it will be very expensive, and it will only be partial. And why we talk about genocide and the importance of prosecuting genocide 
One of the problems you have is that if you go after genocide as a crime, you may indeed in conflict situations only be getting part of the story, depending upon the context. So with respect to ICTR for the genocide in Rwanda, uh, one of the great criticisms of the tribunal has been that they have only of the, the ethnic conflict between uh, the uh, largely uh, Hutu dominant majority population uh, that uh, was in power and that orchestrated the genocide. You usually have to be in power to effectively carry out a genocide. Uh, it's something that requires a bit of uh, uh, policy capacity and resources. Uh, meant that actually, although uh, the uh, Tutsi uh, RPF regime uh, had created a, a certain amount of credible evidence that was collected by human rights organizations, that they too were responsible for some nowhere on the same scale, but a, a, a significant uh, crimes against humanity. Not a single Tutsi was prosecuted by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So yes, while the importance of having international prosecutions rests in the fact that it creates a record of what actually transpired, Alison DeForge, who used to work for Human Rights Watch uh, before she, she tragically died in an airplane accident, was one of the great monitors of, of, of the Rwandan genocide, and her work was very central uh, to the deliberations uh, of the court in Arusha. Uh, and she named her Human Rights Watch report uh, very tellingly, Leave None to Tell the Story. And leave none to tell the story was the uh, objective, the stated objective of the, the uh, Hutu genocidaires. The idea is that you wipe everybody out so that the story is no longer there. And now the archives of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda indeed have a story to tell. But because of the reality of power politics uh, and the strategy of the prosecutor, it's only a partial story. And I think that when you are hoping for the capacity of international criminal justice to respond, and to respond in a way that lives up to the expectations that were proclaimed by policymakers and academics and civil society that were so galvanized by the idea of having international courts and tribunals. You need to be aware of its very serious limitations. And part of that, and I think Jude, you've spoken really well about the influence of power politics and perhaps the hypocritical approaches of the greater powers uh, that support international courts and tribunals uh, when it suits them, uh, and when indeed the scrutiny gets too close for comfort either, either towards themselves or towards their allies, uh, may in more discreet ways actually obstruct the process. Uh, I'd recommend to you to read um, uh, Bosco's book called Rough Justice uh, that looks at the political strategies of the uh, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Uh, and it gives you a very good sense of how uh, the officials of the court, the complexities of these prosecutions, uh, their dependency on states uh, ends up requiring a lot of compromises uh, and trade-offs. And so that international criminal justice, you know, we tend to think of it in terms of its analogous domestic counterpart. And later, lady justice is blindfolded and justice is neutral. But actually, international courts aren't depoliticized. They aren't independent in the way that we think that justice should operate on a national level because they don't have any enforcement powers. If defense counsel actually want to access witnesses, they need an entry visa. If they want their security, 
if they actually aren't afraid to travel in parts of the country, they need to have cooperation with state officials and their authorities, some of those officials who may indeed be responsible or protecting those who are responsible uh, for atrocities. Uh, so international criminal justice and its implementation is something that is profoundly difficult uh, to execute. But bringing this back in closing to Europe, uh, one point that I think... Uh, warrants reflecting upon is we tend to focus on international justice uh, on its side in sort of a silo domain. But what you should be thinking about is international justice prosecutions as part of much broader processes of transition. And when we go back, we have a very romanticized idea of the Nuremberg trials and all the movies and, and dramas that flowed from it. But actually, if you look at the robust democracy that was built in Germany, many will tell you that it had much more to do with the Marshall Plan than it did with the prosecutions. And the prosecutions very much fed into an idealized uh, allied vision of the justice that they were bringing. It, it fit into a broader political narrative. But the Marshall Plan reminds us that actually, if you're thinking about the Balkans and now the, the reports that those experts who work in the region see a disarming slide back uh, towards periods where there was a heightened tension between ethnic groups and, and that that actually hasn't disappeared, that it's creeping back and they're worried about the future of the region. And although we're kind of consumed, we think of the EU now as one of many series of crisis and we're consumed with Brexit, Croatia became the 28th member of the European Union in 2013. We now have Serbia engaged in a slow process of transposing legislation. The EU is talking about bringing in the Western Balkans. But if you think about the benefits of the European Union, we've certainly seen them in the context of Ireland. If you think about how our identity has changed significantly since Ireland has become a member of the European Union, one might actually realize that, yes, prosecutions are important, but maybe, more, perhaps more realistically, investing in economic prosperity, allowing people to have a kind of progressive vision of their future rather than focusing upon the harms of the past, no matter how important, actually, justice is. But justice will never be complete. It will never make people whole. It will never erase what happened. It will only give us a partial... Uh, um, remembrance through judgments. So I'll end with that note, as I can't be terribly uh, hopeful for international prosecutions because of, I think, all the uh, pitfalls uh, that the courts and tribunals have, have experienced, uh, many not, not of their own making. But I do feel hopeful about the capacity of states uh, to work in sub-regional and regional groupings and for identities to move on beyond this narrow ethno-nationalism uh, that has caused so much destruction uh, in all parts of the world. As an old geezer who's a graduate of this university, it's really good to see so many young people here tonight. And I must say, my notes have become somewhat redundant because my learned colleagues here have gobbled up a lot of space and a lot of territory. But um, I, I am not an academic expert in, in, in genocide, but I have experienced it up close. I worked in, as Rosemary mentioned, in Iraq, 
under the sanctions period and watched as we, the United Nations Security Council, killed about 500,000, maybe a million uh, Iraqi children, as, confor- as was confirmed by Madame Albright, the U.S. ambassador, who said this was justified in order to punish Saddam Hussein. Of course, that is gobbledygook because we punish the people, not the leadership, and that is the failure of, of sanctions. I've also participated in tribunals, uh, both two in, in the Tamil situation, here in Dublin and also in Bremen, and more recently in London on the first tribunal we had on the Rohingya Uh, tragedy. What I'd like to do is to focus a little bit on what I call the past perpetrators of uh, genocide, who continue to perpetrate genocide today, or if not directly, indirectly, as allies or vested interests in countries like maybe Cambodia, perhaps Myanmar, and certainly uh, Sri Lanka. And they are the problem, because until we remove them, we're not going to change genocide. Uh, And we need to get into a position where we can anticipate genocide and, of course, stop it before it begins, because right now we don't do that. We designate genocide when it's too late. Uh, We've had a good run through the definition of genocide by by Ben. Um, The word intentional, intentionality, is is key. And I'm not sure he mentioned that, but I'm sure he intended to. And yet, you know, when the Americans killed 202 million Vietnamese, did they intentionally plan to do that? That's a question you could ask yourselves. Or in Yangon, do they intend to kill thousands or hundreds of thousands to push out 600,000 into Bangladesh? Or did the Saudis, or do the Saudis right now intentionally plan to destroy Yemen totally and murder the Houthis, a minority up in the Sana'a region? So intentionality is part of the definition, but you wonder how it gets in there, so to speak. The history, I think, is important because, as I said, the, the, the past is, is current. And the, the difficulty we have is that, um, the, as Ben, I think, implied, the, the, the danger of genocide comes out of corrupted religious faith, it comes out of land, oil, greed, resources, empire, colonialism, power, military ambition, racism, punishment, all of that. That, that brings on, whether it's internal or external or, or a mixture of both, it brings on what we uh, abhor. And um, the, the, uh, the situation uh, now is that we have, uh, um, we, have, we have internal genocide in sovereign states like Rwanda, like uh, Cambodia, like several other examples. But I, if you go back to the beginning, I have to look at you all and say to myself and to you that we white European Christians are the most dangerous people on earth. And let me start with the Crusades. The Crusades is a picture-perfect example of genocide. Hundreds of thousands of military uh, Christian uh, warriors set sail or whatever they marched through Turkey, right into through Syria, into the... In other words, to clear out of Jerusalem and the Holy Land Jews and Arabs who were, were residing there. That's a, it, it satisfies genocide, in my mind at least, 100%. And we haven't really changed, because, as Ben mentioned, we moved down the centuries. I'm just going to jump to a more recent period setting aside the um, in 16, 19th centuries with the development of, again, white Christian endeavor, the colonial period, where we gobbled up most of the world uh, and, and, and destroyed and brought destruction and, and murder and mayhem and exploitation and slavery and all of the things that make up uh, a nightmare. And uh, we've seen that um, uh, the British, of course, perhaps are outstanding, 
Africa, Far East, India, of course, where uh, Churchill himself was responsible for killing three and a half million Indians when he moved food out of India to feed the troops in, in Europe during the, the war. The Netherlands is infamous in Indonesia and other places, creating slavery, uh, slaves out of the people of Java. The Belgians are in, infamous in, in the Congo, where over 8 million were butchered by the Belgian, Belgian king. Portugal is well known for parts of Africa and, and, other part, and uh, Latin America. Spain, as Ben mentioned, Spain, of course. France, Asia, North America, sorry, not North America, um, North Africa and, and Central Africa. And even Germany in the old days when they had the colonial regimes uh, brutalized and slaughtered a couple of tribal groups in Namibia. And even in China, they attacked these savage, uh, inferior Asian people. And, and lastly, to mention North America again, uh, we, have, we've, we have perhaps the greatest genocides committed in, in history uh, in Australia, in Latin America, in Central America, and of course in North America. In fact, the, the genocide in North America continues. This is, it's an ongoing genocide today in that from maybe 20-something million Native Americans, we now have about perhaps 2 million, and most of those are living very poor, shabby lives in reservations and not given the opportunities that the rest of the United States gives to its, its uh, uh, populace. So we, we, we have a problem of ongoing. We have a problem of those who, um, who uh, continue the, the program. And I've, made, I've avoided mentioning slavery across the Atlantic and the United States and, the, and the South Africa and South American states. And I'm skipping the first war, the second war. The Holocaust, of course, has been mentioned, where we saw a, a brutal and tragic attack on a, a religious uh, group where in a context where perhaps 10, 15 million people lost their lives and 6 million Jews clearly, uh, very specifically, were put to death. Because, of course, we, we nice Europeans, we failed. We failed the Jewish people. We had space, we had opportunities in the 30s, and we didn't take them. We could have done, but we didn't take them. So that's another side to that uh, tragedy. Um, since then, since 45, we now have a whole new ongoing role. Ben mentioned DPRK, which is interesting, because I, I agree with him, of course, that Trump's threat is genocidal by nature. And the fact is, at the end of the um, Korean War, the United States did bomb North Korea, and they destroyed every city, and they killed 20% of the population. So what he said has real meaning to the North Koreans, uh, as you can well imagine. If you look at Vietnam, again, the loss of life there is absolutely extraordinary. Laos, Cambodia, the Pol Pot, again, supported by allies uh, in, in the neighborhood, so to speak. And uh, Zimbabwe, as we know, in, in Matabeli land, there was also a genocide committed by the man who is now the new president. Indonesia, we've mentioned, I think. Palestine, nobody's mentioned, but that is an ongoing genocide. That is not ending and is, is very scary. Um, so all of this is uh, part of the, the definition and... Um, <laughs> And, and the tragedy of ongoing, and I won't get into Sri Lanka, Myanmar, my, my time apparently is running out already. But the fact is that uh, we have member states who are not playing the game, and uh, they are not prepared to make change. And what has to be done is we've got to take the power, which is, resides in the veto uh, member states of the Security Council. We've got to change the, the council and make it a democratic institution. We've got to have in the council every region of the world represented, which of course is not the case today. What we do have, we have four of these white Christian Europeans represented, excluding China, and they are guilty of genocide themselves, 
and are reluctant to, to, to designate genocide today, just like Clinton couldn't bring himself to identify Rwanda as genocide. And we, the United Nations, had 5,000 troops in Rwanda as the genocide took place. But the council didn't have the courage to give the general uh, 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 from Canada the authority to go ahead. So what do we do? Well, I think we have to get rid of the perpetrators, end the Security Council, bring it, make it democratic, and get a different ballgame and a different decision-making process. We've got to take the ICC or some other entities and make it, give it freedom. Because right now the International Criminal Court is controlled by the Council. We've got to free up the Secretariat to do better work, anticipate problems rather than coming in too late, which is the way things have been done in the past. We've got to speak to power, demand action. We've got to reform all of the all aspects of the United Nations. And we've got to um, uh, get into the anticipation business, prevent genocide, do peacekeeping, question state sovereignty, maybe interfere, and that's a very dangerous game, which, of course, can backfire. But we've got to anticipate much better. And lastly, I think we've got to show that reform can work with integrity, commitment, human rights, respect of nonviolence, the United Nations, the states that run the United Nations, people like me are just the servants of those states, things can change. Because if we, if we don't buy into that, if we give up, you know, we owe it to the thousands, millions of people who have died and are dying as we sit here today under genocidal situations. If we, we don't make an effort, we don't have hope, we're abandoning them and that's unacceptable. We've, we Europeans have got to do much better. We've got to uh, as we failed in the past with the Jews of Europe, we've got to do better with all the others who are now struggling and make them welcome. Because frankly, we have a catastrophe here. We have the genocide at our doorsteps around the world, and we need to get our act together to bring that to an end and, and do it in a way that everybody has a life and a future and well-being. Thank you. Um, before we uh, thank our panel, I just want to remind you that there are a lot of events going on in the Trinity Long Room Hub. You're all extremely welcome. Our next Behind the Headlines will be uh, on the 17th of January. It's uh, in partnership with the Financial Times and it's on the future of Europe and its borders. Uh, obviously, we'll be advertising that, and uh, we hope uh, that you'll join us. Sorry we didn't have time for more questions, because they were great questions, great contributions. So thanks to you for coming and your questions. To my staff, who always do such a great job organizing these events. But above all, to our four fabulous panelists this evening. So thank you very, very much.